In today's episode of Crypto Over Coffee, we're talking about two major cryptocurrencies that I regret buying and what I learned from both of those mistakes. So hopefully it can help you, but that's not all. We've got news about some controversies surrounding Ethereum, an update on the Voyager sale, and a whole bunch more. So that said, you know the drill. Grab yourself a coffee, make sure you're subscribed, and stick around for the whole episode. Got my coffee right here today. That's from Onyx Coffee, one of my favorite roasters. So quick coffee break. Now, in a bear market, it's pretty hard to look at one's portfolio and see much else but regrets when what's left of your holdings are down pretty badly. But there are bad moves that one makes that have a lasting impression and that bring us lessons learned long after the assets no longer in one's portfolio. And one of those regrets for me is none other than Solana. And before the Solana people get really angry, here's the reason why. Solana was really the first blockchain that I saw get venture capital interest really, really early on. And Solana took a wildly different approach to the technical challenges of building a blockchain compared to Ethereum and pretty much everything else in the space at the time. That interested me quite a lot because I'm a tech-focused guy. I loved seeing all the different components they envisioned. I delved into the papers and the docs and anything I could get my hands on to learn about the project. Throughout the tail end of the last bear market, I had averaged some funds in on Solana. Nothing big, but fast forward to the bull market, and you just saw this exponential growth, and of course I was stoked. First, behind the scenes, there was this venture money flying around at the scale I'd never seen, and then total value locked, or TVL, blew up on Solana. NFTs started exploding, and all this caused Sol to rocket. Of course, because I practice what I preach, I took profits. And so you're thinking right now, okay, well, if you took profits, then why do you regret it? Well, because I miscalculated the probability that the Solana market interest was inorganic. And I took a lot of those profits and I distributed them to other things in the Solana ecosystem. And I re-entered Sol, the native token, at times along the way to catch runs up as it hit all-time highs. But then it all came undone. It was discovered that Solana's total value lock metric was being gamed big time by a small group of people artificially pumping the numbers. Then many projects that were propped up for a long time started to falter, and everything really deflated super quickly in the Solana ecosystem in a very short period of time. And it took me right along for the ride down with it. And if you think that was a bad haircut for me, just wait for the next regrettable cryptocurrency I'll get into in a minute. That one was actually worse for me, uh, so stay tuned. Compound that, though, with the macro environment and Solana's network instability, and now all these concerns around FTX and its relationship to Solana, you have Sol 95% down from all-time highs and still looking shaky. And like I said weeks ago, in the wake of the FTX saga, I exited Solana and pretty much all Solana-related investments altogether. But the lesson learned for me here is that the feeding frenzy of venture capital interest was actually a risk rather than an indicator of value, and that metrics like total value locked are very poor at giving an accurate view of the health of a blockchain's ecosystem. Clearly, it's easy to game. To that point, I thought it was too difficult to drastically game the numbers for TVL, and I was very wrong on that. If I had to point to one last failing in this whole thing for me was that I didn't hold on to all the profits I had because I decided to, rather greedily I might add, chase more. And that's a mistake we're all prone to at times and I've even talked about here. So I try to be wary of that inclination whenever I can be, but sometimes it flips a switch and you make a mistake. 
That said, for a completely different reason, I got caught in another bad move late in the final throws of the bull market, like in the fall of last year in 2021. And I'd been really sick of paying ridiculous fees in DeFi on Ethereum, so I'd started tinkering with Avalanche and Phantom and Solana and the early days of Cardano DeFi towards the end of the bull market. And Phantom had become one of my favorite places to play around with DeFi projects. It was really flourishing, and there was a lot of fun things to do, a lot of money to be had. There was a ton of hype around pretty much everything in Phantom, particularly because of DeFi poster child Andre Crone being at the center of all of this on the scalable low-fee Phantom network. As you can imagine, it was really fun hopping from protocol to protocol on Phantom and paying fees that were cents on the dollar, and it made Ethereum DeFi look like a cruel joke along the way. And by the way, I've got a pretty shocking story on Ethereum coming up, so don't click away. Anyways, on Phantom, the profit's really good for a while as well, but everything changed when Andre Krohn unexpectedly, or I guess kind of expectedly, left the crypto space entirely. Scathingly, I might add. Krohn and his often crazy but innovative DeFi protocols were a major driving force behind interest in Phantom, and he was really involved in Phantom, the protocol itself. And things were never the same after he left. There were accusations of impropriety from the Phantom team and all kinds of unsavory stuff happening at that time that really caused an exodus from Phantom after that. The problem was, I made an error of judgment after Crone left. I thought that no figurehead or important person could cast such a shadow that an entire ecosystem cannot move out from under it and that things wouldn't recover. And to be fair, things did improve, but only for a short time. By the time I was ready to accept that Phantom would never recover from the litany of negative events, the money had flown out of DeFi across all these scalable EVM alternatives, including Avalanche and others, and much of what remained in my portfolio of that native FTM token and DeFi tokens from Phantom's ecosystem were ravaged in the process. And yes, there were profits along the way, but... I was left with very little of that by the end because I'd underestimated the weight of a figurehead like Andre Krohn in the fate of an entire ecosystem. And to be honest with you, figurehead seems like the wrong label for him because he has major technical chops, but you get the idea. He was really important in that area, and he alone caused a lot of damage when he left. And if I had taken Krohn's departure seriously, or rather the rumors about it before the news broke, I would have kept way more of my profits and avoided major losses. So I do hope that my retrospective analysis of my own mistakes are both therapeutic and educational for you, if not a bit comedic at times. So if you enjoy this type of content, let me know, and I'll keep making more of it as time goes on, because I'll probably make more mistakes in the future, just hopefully not more of the same ones that I've already made. And speaking of mistakes, I really do think that the Ethereum core development team is making a mistake in its approach to the upcoming Shanghai update more specifically, their approach to bringing the ability for those users who staked Ether a long time ago to withdraw that stake. Those stakers who today are still unable to access their funds that are locked in stake are starting to show signs of unease given the recent vagary around the actual timeline for the unlocking of those staked funds. And I've been a pretty staunch defender of the Ethereum staking situation when it's been met with criticism and about this fact that Ether is locked in stake and withdrawals would only be uh, allowed months after the merge event that shifted Ethereum to proof of stake. And my defense was predicated on the fact that stakers were told very, very clearly, and they were optionally allowed to stake, 
told very clearly from the start that their funds would be locked up until the Ethereum network shifted to proof of stake and that it could be years from the time one stake before they could withdraw. That warning was very clear. Despite what people say, it was very clear. However, my defense of this whole situation has waned because at every turn, the Ethereum core community has seemed to fail to prioritize this functionality that they indicated would be a priority after the merge to proof of stake. There have been several times where the timeline has shifted, or at least the narrative around it, from six months to six months to a year. And now there's talk of a longer timeline to the point where stakers can unlock and withdraw their Ether on no general timeline. To me, it's ethically and morally reprehensible to treat Ethereum holders like prisoners to the protocol, particularly during a time where people are struggling financially and could really use at least the option to move those funds. And as we sit here right now, the usual back and forth is going on about what Ethereum improvement proposals or EIPs are going to go into the Shanghai upgrade. And at the very bottom of the list that was published in the draft proposals is that update to enable withdrawals. It's so clearly an afterthought, not a priority, even in its placement amongst the other proposed updates. And while I try to live my life committed to never assuming malicious intent, the lack of communication and priority ascribed to this Ether staking unlock feature opens up this Ethereum core community to all kinds of accusations and concerns, including things like that are out of control, like deliberately delaying the unlock due to market conditions for fear of large-scale Ether dumping. And no matter how much I use, support, and have invested in Ethereum personally, I'm calling this out for what it is. It's a farce. Protocol design is one thing to be argued on merit, such as the design choice to lock ETH in stake rather than leaving it liquid, but this debate around staking unlock is not a protocol design debate. It's a matter of delivering on your end of the bargain when your community quite literally stakes their funds and puts them on the line to support you. In my opinion, Ethereum should have an earlier update prior to Shanghai, which is at least a year away in my opinion, that will bring staking unlock on the original proposed and communicated timeline. Just make it clear, or at least come out and say, here's our plan, this is what we're gonna do. Now my friends, you know what time it is? It's 4.04, that is 4.04 Logic Not Found, a firecracker of a segment on the show where we bring attention to illogical happenings in the crypto space of which there are plenty. And if you wanna help this show get some attention, the Crypto Over Coffee Show, please hit the like button, get subscribed, follow the podcast, share it with your friends. All of that is super appreciated. And today we have another segment featuring one of our favorite 404 guests, Elizabeth Warren. And it seems like there's no shortage of foolish statements and sentiments from Senator Elizabeth Warren about crypto. So here we are again, another one. In the wake of the FTX implosion that had sent crypto markets reeling, Senator Elizabeth Warren wrote a scathing op-ed piece in the Wall Street Journal titled, quote, Regulate Crypto or It'll Take Down the Economy. And it also had a strap line which read, Financial innovators always claim they don't need oversight. They're always proved wrong. Now, in the headline and strap line alone, there is so much stupidity that is almost intoxicating. So let's just start there and then we'll move into the actual piece. First of all, the boldness of the claim that crypto, a sub $1 trillion asset class globally, could take down the economy without regulation is not only farcical, it is intellectually dishonest to state in any way that is not satirical. Even in the future, let's say it's a $5 trillion area, 
it's not going to take down the whole economy. For years, officials have been minimizing the impact of crypto and its effect on the broader economy. And we've seen the nastiest contagion in crypto history over the last several months, and it has not affected the economy in the slightest. The actual data points point to the exact opposite of what Senator Warren is stating in this hyperbole of a title. The second point that stands out here is this call for regulation to avoid such an outcome. The funny part is that a lot of the disastrous financial consequences of the many failed crypto pillars of the last year could have been avoided if regulators had actually done their job in the first place. And a lot of people are going to say this subjectively. I get it. There's two sides to the story. But instead of regulating, we had a lot of virtue signaling, posturing, and misplaced enforcement action that seemed to completely miss the massive urgent opportunities to save the retail investor from losing big, which is the whole mission of the regulator, right? To save the retail investor from losses. There have been repeated calls from crypto industry leaders to come to the table with lawmakers and regulators to come up with sensible solutions and rules to make it easier to build in the United States with clear policies and frameworks for avoiding systemic fraud like we've seen on display this year. At each opportunity to do that, there's been just utter failure, political nonsense to even start on that path. And the only thing we've seen is enforcement action. That's not regulating. Further into the article's content, Senator Warren brings up the same tired narratives about crypto's dangers, citing terrorist financing and illicit uses that the U.S.'s own Treasury Department has found to be a far more minuscule issue than it's been made to be in recent reports on these illicit activities, such as the 2022 National Terrorist Financing Risk Assessment that the Treasury published earlier this year. Throughout this short single-sided rhetoric-filled piece, Senator Warren calls for aggressive funding in support of regulators and enforcement against crypto. But at no point calls for the prerequisite task of establishing regulatory frameworks in the U.S. for cryptocurrency. It has never been in debate that enforcement can and should be brought against bad actors who use cryptocurrency or any financial instrument of that matter for committing fraud or any sort of illicit activity. But it seems like many of those who have been targeted for enforcement to date are not the most egregious offenders, not the ones who've cost people the most losses. The 404 logic not found here is in the paradoxical, exaggerated, and obtuse claims against an entire industry of which we have addressed only a few examples of. However, the saddening part of this is that we've crossed the void into delusion now, where anger and fear overrides the facts. Crypto is not a systemic risk to the economy. Crypto has not been regulated in good faith despite calls to do so. There is no regulatory clarity. And the findings from the U.S. Treasury Department and others this year alone have found that illicit activity is not the primary use case for crypto and its related technologies. So why are we still debating the minutia rather than solving the problem? For me, and I think for many others, making a statement of intent as to what regulators can do would be to actually move on the FTX situation. That would be a great start. Build some confidence that there can be regulation in good faith. In other news, the sale of the embattled crypto lending platform Voyager, who entered Chapter 11 bankruptcy proceedings earlier this year, was thrown into complete disarray after the FTX exchange imploded. Why, you might ask? Because FTX, now with a $10 billion plus hole in its balance sheet, was the buyer of Voyager and its assets. This, of course, threw the many affected investors from Voyager into a renewed sense of uncertainty because the auction sale of Voyager could no longer proceed as planned. 
In the latest twist here, though, Binance US, a separate entity that operates in the US under the Binance moniker, has reportedly stated intent to make a bid on Voyager now that FTX is out of the picture. And this is even more juicy than it seems at face value because there was quite a bit of rumor mill going on around whether FTX's Sam Bankman-Fried was undermining Binance US's original bid for Voyager behind the scenes with regulators to win the bid for FTX. Regardless of the veracity of those rumors, Binance US acquiring Voyager will give its users the best chance of recovering at least some semblance of the value they had lost on the platform in its bankruptcy, which is good news overall. The real question is, though, will the sale go through? What will the terms be? And how much, if any, will the investors affected be repaid if this deal does go through? So we're going to have to wait and see how this one pans out. I know that CZ, the leader of Binance holistically around the world, is already signaling that this is true. It's not just a rumor. So we'll have to see how this plays out. And hopefully, Voyager folks will be made as whole as possible. That being said, folks, that is going to do it for Crypto Over Coffee today. I really appreciate you stopping by. I hope you have a wonderful rest of your weekend. And if you have some time to stick around, I've got another video here all about something that you're really going to want to know about in the crypto space. I'm going to link it up on the screen for you or in the description on the podcast platforms. So thank you so much as always. And until next time, cheers.